right, we are rolling. How's it going, brother? How you doing today? Whew, man, I am thankful that we had people listen to our last podcast. As long as it was, people still listened. Dude, that's insane to me. It, it's so crazy to see the traction that this is gaining and to see how our numbers are ticking upward every week. Our audience is growing. To all of you listening, we thank you so much for your interest in this. Obviously, you agree with us. This is an important topic. And what we are delving into is something that's that's needed within the church. And that's not to say that those who have gone before us that have held different positions than we have are just flat out wrong or they've done a disservice to everybody. I, I believe that everyone who holds the traditional view is sincere in their beliefs. Everyone has a desire to be pleasing unto God. They have a desire to do what is right in God's sight. But the question ever remains is, do we have a full contextual grasp of what the Bible actually teaches about this topic or that topic or that topic over there? Because though the Bible's perfect, we're not. I'm not perfect. My lens through which I view scripture is likely not a perfect lens. And so it's always a good thing to be studious, to study the scriptures, to search the scriptures. And to do so in a manner of good faith with an open mind, always seeking truth above all else. Amen. And that's all the podcast today. <laughs> Touche. You, you, say, you say things so eloquently. I mean, you really do. I go back and I listen to these. And, you know, if, if there is a comparison to like it's kind of like Barney Fife and Andy Griffith you know I'm the I'm the Barney I feel like I'm the Barney Fife in the group here <laughs> dude just keep your bullet in your pocket and we'll be okay <laughs> just, just keep that bullet in your pocket nah brother you got to give yourself more credit i mean the majority especially on this topic that we're getting into the majority of the the legwork is being done by you i'm just kind of here to talk and fill in some gaps and provide maybe a different angle on things and I mean, this is largely your work because I've studied this. I've looked into this, but brother, you've studied this in way more depth than I have. And I'm, I'm more or less just kind of your sidekick through through this particular run. So give yourself more credit than that, brother. Well, and that's why I have so much respect for people who even do hold different positions than we do. I mean, I'm thankful for God's grace that you don't have to have everything correct in order to go to heaven and that we can be sincere and sincerely wrong at times and Quite frankly, let's just be honest and say there's probably a lot of stuff that we are sincerely wrong about. And we're thankful that people are listening to this just to hear some alternative understandings to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I tell this to everybody, not just on this topic, but whenever I'm talking to anybody, quite frankly, about any topic is I am going to do the best I can when I'm talking to someone to explain to them why I'm convinced and yeah. it's up to them at that point to go and do their own research, to check the sources don't limit your study to just what you believe. In fact, the more that I studied different positions, the more it allowed me to see the error in the position I once held. And so it shouldn't be a scary thing to study different positions, especially oppositional positions, because if it's truth, it's going to stand. Well, it, it, hasn't it been your experience? Because I know it's been mine, that whenever you're wrong about something, at first, it's really, really hard. It's really hard to be wrong because no one likes to be wrong or to think that I didn't have the best perspective on this. But the more you realize or the like the first time you see that you're wrong, it's incredibly difficult to accept. 
But once you're able to accept it, you're able to see where you went wrong. You're able to find more nuance and you're able to come to a better understanding of the truth that God has revealed. Well, then subsequently, it gets a little easier each time whenever you adjust the nuances of your doctrine, when you adjust the nuances of your faith. I know it's gotten easier for me. And at this point, it's really easy for me to admit that I'm wrong. It doesn't affect me. It used to go against my ego. It used to hurt my pride, but it really doesn't anymore. Have you experienced kind of the same thing with that? I have. And it also helps when it comes to looking at people who you do disagree with now and understanding where they're at because that's where you were at at one point. And I don't look at people who disagree with me as just these horrible false teachers who don't care about doing what God says, because I understand, and I was there myself. So it doesn't mean that we think these people are are ignorant. It doesn't mean that we think that they're not good Bible students. Uh, I'm going to talk about John Piper a, a little bit tonight some more. And man, he's a phenomenal Bible student. Do I agree with everything he says? No, I don't. But he, he's a good Bible student. And so yeah. we, can, we can have debates and discussions, and there's going to be a lot of good Bible students on different issues. And that's why it's important to look at what different people have to say so that we can really come to our own conclusion and, and truly explore our own faith and work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Because at the end of the day, this, that's what it's about is this is something you have to be convinced on anyway. And so yeah. let's let's go ahead and jump right in. I, I want to just start by talking about what we're not going to be dealing with this week. We are we're not going to be dealing with the exception clause in the teachings of Jesus, and we're not going to be dealing with people that we believe are innocent in a divorce. And that's assuming there even are people who are innocent in a divorce. We're not even going to be dealing with that this week. And the reason why is because we're going to focus today on truly contextualizing Jesus. And dealing with the guilty. Who are the guilty? Because oftentimes when people read the marital teachings of Jesus, they want to jump right to who are the innocent. Let's talk about the exception clause. Who can who can remarry? Who can't remarry? Can everybody remarry? Can anybody remarry? People want to jump right to those conclusions. But before we go there, we're going to spend this whole episode talking about the guilty. Who's guilty? Who is Jesus? What is Jesus actually teaching against? Because that's the focus. <laughs> that's the focus. Jesus' point is not to let's focus on the uh, supposed exception clause or talk about who's innocent. Jesus' point is to talk about the guilty. That That is why he is talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage in both of the times and the situations where he does address this issue. So we're not going to be dealing with the innocent. We're going to be dealing with the guilty. And so just to give kind of a refresher of the last episode, we talked about the different reasons for divorce that were considered lawful, biblical, justifiable under the Old Testament, under the, the Jewish law. And those were adultery, neglect, at times intermarriage, and possibly incestuous marriages. We're not sure, even with those last two, at, in some cases, because the law did allow for the, some of those marriages to continue, but we do see that at times divorce was lawful in those situations. So that is the context in which we're at that brings us now to the first century. And Lee, I, I just want to go ahead and, and kind of turn this over to you so you can give us a little understanding of what it was like. Before we even talk about Jesus, let's put people in the first century. Let's put ourselves in the first century the best way we know how based upon the evidences that we do have. Well, whenever you begin to look at the different cultures that have existed throughout time, culture does not exist in a vacuum. 
And our culture doesn't exist in a vacuum. There are things that are happening now with all of the coronavirus stuff, with all of the the tragic things that have gone on with um, black protesters being targeted, with um, police officers, all of them being castigated because of the actions of some of some bad ones with, you know, the principles of systemic racism, everything else, we're seeing a sea change now in our culture. And this will influence our culture. The things that are going on right now in the spring and early summer of 2020 will be influencing our culture in another five years. It will influence our culture in another 10 years. We saw that before with the civil rights movement in the 1960s. It influenced our culture in the years to come. You go back even further into, uh, oh, what's it called? To prohibition. And whenever prohibition passed, it influenced culture as it moved forward until the 18th Amendment was repealed and then prohibition came to an end. That still influences our culture even today. So you're going to see the ripple effects of culture take place. And the best way to understand the effects that culture has had on our modern culture is to be able to study when those cultural changes took place. If you look at the scriptures, you can get an idea behind the cultural context of the day, but it's not going to paint a complete picture of what that culture was like. And the reason for that is, is the purpose of the Holy Spirit in revealing those things, at least the way I understand it, I could be wrong about this. I always reserve the right to be wrong. <laughs> Amen. The Holy Spirit in, yeah. The Holy Spirit in revealing the truth that he revealed to those inspired writers of old he wasn't interested in revealing cultural truths to them. And he was interested in revealing God's truth and what God wanted those writers to communicate that were timeless principles for all time. But we can't ignore the fact that those men that wrote those things down lived within a particular culture in a particular time in a particular place. And so we're going to see the background of their cultural influence come through in the writings that we, that they wrote. One example would be the idea of a firmament, and this is something we'll get into when we cover origins and ancient cosmology and ancient cosmography. That's coming later. Right now, we're not getting into all that, but whenever they discuss, whenever the the writer of Genesis discusses the firmament, you know, the idea of that thing, of the thing that they called the firmament, the best translation for that would be a hard dome over a flat earth. And that was the best understanding they had at the time. That was a cultural statement that communicated a deeper theological truth. And we understand that and we know that that was the case. We know that that was what was communicated because of the linguistic evidence that exists from that era of seeing other places that were concurrent with Israel. We see this in Babylonian texts. We see this in Akkadian texts. We see this in other things. Well, the same thing is true whenever it comes to any other time within that culture. Any other time within Israeli culture, if you look at the ancient Israelites at the time of Moses, you have a completely different culture and a completely different type of lifestyle and the way people lived whenever you fast forward 2,000 years into the future or 1,500 years into the future or whatever else, you're going to see a lot of the same underpinnings of that culture, but you're also going to see some changes in how language was used and the art that was utilized and the stories that were told and the myths that they used to communicate truth. You're going to see a lot of that. And when you look at the ancient archaeology, you look at the other things in anthropology and the other discoveries, it helps us to contextualize and understand how those ancient people lived and how they live their lives. As it relates to marriage, divorce, and remarriage, what we see in this time 
if we look at somewhere around five to 700 years before the first century, there's a lot of legal texts that have been discovered. There are scrolls that have been discovered. There are divorce certificates that have been discovered. There's a lot of good archaeological finds that paint a picture in our minds of how people lived. And as time moved forward, and this is something we're going to get into in this podcast, we see that divorce becomes more prevalent as time goes on. It was always something that existed. It was always something that was an entity in that ancient world, but it became more prevalent. We're going to discuss why it became more prevalent as time moves on. Well, you come to the first century and people could divorce for pretty much any reason that any cause divorce that we'll discuss here in another few minutes was the most common type of divorce that existed. It was the most common way that people would utilize to divorce their spouse because they didn't need any proof that adultery had occurred. They didn't need to provide proof that neglect had occurred, which were two of the things that we discussed last time. They didn't have to prove incest or anything like that, believe or nominally, whatever. There was no proof necessary. You could just divorce for any reason. It wasn't unlike it is today. And we see this illustrated in uh, John's gospel. In John chapter four, we see this alluded to whenever Jesus comes to the woman at the well. And that's a story we're all familiar with. Jesus has been traveling. He's thirsty. He comes up to the well and there's a Samaritan woman there. And Jesus speaks of that Samaritan woman and asks her to draw up some water for him. And then he speaks to her of that living water that if anyone drinks of it, they'll never thirst again. And a lot of times whenever we hear this mentioned or taught in a sermon, we focus on that or the preacher focuses on the living water or the preacher focuses on how much of a cultural revolutionary Jesus was, because here's a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan who were hated by the Jews, a half breed Jew. That's what the Samaritans were a woman. Nonetheless, at this, at this place. And Jesus speaks to her about this living water. She asks him about this living water so she can drink it and never thirst again. Then Jesus gets into the spiritual connotations of that. She says in verse 15, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Then the woman answered and said, and we need to take note of this in verse 17. I have no husband. Yeah. And, and I want to interject something there because she said that before Jesus said anything. She she made it clear that that she had no husband. She knew she had no husband. She was honest with Jesus and said she had no husband. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Now, there have been some people that I have heard take this message or take this passage where Jesus says, the one whom you have now is not your husband. And they elucidated or made the point that she was married to him, but she knew that this was an invalid marriage or whatever else, but they were married under the color of law, but under the color of God's law, they weren't married. Well, if that's the case, she would have answered, I have a husband, I'll go get him. And then Jesus would have corrected her notion. She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. She was with a man. She was cohabitating with a man, but she was not married to that man. And that's when she says, I perceive you're a prophet. She didn't give any sort of clarification into her lifestyle. The fact that Jesus knew that was evidence enough that he was something special. 
But in any case, that, that deviates kind of from the point that we're making. The point is she had no husband, period. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've been married five times. And the man you're with now, you ain't married to him either. That's essentially the point that he was making. And that was a very common thing during this time period. In fact, uh, I want to just give this quote here. This is from the Expositor's Greek Testament. It says, In Malachi's time, facility for divorce was producing disastrous consequences, and probably many women, not only in Samaria but among the poor Jews, had a similar history to relate. And the reason why they believe this, as Lee pointed out, is we have a lot of information today to help us understand the context of the Bible, that we can properly understand what it would have looked like. And of course, you don't need all of that extra context to simply know that this woman was not married according to not only her, but according to Jesus. And so this demonstrates that all marriages, regardless of which subsequent marriage it may be after divorce, during that time was considered a real marriage. But also all divorces during this time, regardless of the reason, was considered a real divorce and severed the actual marriage. How do we know that? Because Jesus said that. And if Jesus wanted to correct this woman, he could have simply said, actually, woman, you're saying the wrong thing. In the eyes of God, you're still married to your first husband. You need to go back, repent, and turn to him. Or Jesus could have said, in the eyes of God, you're still married to the second or third husband, whoever you were last scripturally married to, whatever it might be, Jesus would have definitely corrected that. But Jesus not only didn't correct her, he agreed with her explicitly when he said, what you say is correct. You have no husband. And so Jesus did not recognize this woman still being bound, still being joined together in any way, which is interesting because that means that that's how Jesus understood marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that a marriage was a marriage and a divorce was a divorce. And regardless of how many previous marriages you've had, uh, then whatever marriage you're in is a real marriage. And no matter how many divorces you've had, if you're divorced, you're no longer married. Yeah. And, and to me, that's that's fairly plain whenever we read this. But the reason why we oftentimes don't take it or we don't see that point or we don't accept that point is because of what we talked about last time. We come to it with a presupposition of that traditional view. We, you know, Whether we've inherited that view or whether we've heard it preached on or whether we haven't really given any other perspective, any other time to consider, you know, we come to it with that. And because we have that presupposition, we miss this point that's being made here. And it's not that Jesus is specifically making that point. It's not that the Holy Spirit's purpose was to reveal that this is exactly how marriage worked. What we see is a contextual statement that's contextualized within the reality of the first century. Jesus recognized what marriage was in the first century. He recognized what divorce was. And as we'll see here in a little bit in, in this episode and also in the next episode, Jesus made corrections to that understanding when it was necessary. But in this, we see Jesus making no such, no such correction. Jesus recognizes that her marriages were valid. She was not bound to any of those men beforehand. And the man that she had now was not her husband. And to me, it's it's fairly plain and it's fairly straightforward. I've actually had someone, when I was talking to them about this, respond by saying, well, this just means that all of her other husbands had died. 
<laughs> wow, she's and, a black widow. Then. And 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 I mean, let's. I, I'd be I'd be nervous, Marrier. And let's 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 just take that response for a moment and look at it. Is it possible? Is it possible that this woman had five husbands, and all of them died, and now she just decided to just shack up with a guy and not marry him? Is is that possible? Sure, it's possible. Is there any reason to believe that's the context and that's what happened? Not unless you have a preconceived belief that makes you explain away John chapter 4, verse 17. And, yeah. and that's why we have to be honest. It's like, come on, let's be honest for a minute. Is that really what you believe? You really believe that this woman had been married five times, all of her husbands had died, and now she is just living with a man. This wouldn't then just think about this. Think think yeah. about think about for a second that this woman obviously was still young enough to to be living with a man to to go and gather water. Okay, so she she had to be at least in good shape, a younger woman. So a younger woman, and by the way, people didn't live as long back then anyway. So a younger woman had already gone through five husbands, and all five of them had died. And her moral lifestyle just happens to be she's now just living with a man. That's these are the types of, of responses that made me realize that my for, my former belief was rooted in tradition. It wasn't rooted yeah. in truth because you begin to just come up with some really nonsensical conclusions. And we're really going to do that when we talk about some of these other uh, examples here later on. But go, go ahead and continue, Lee, with the thought of how during this time, not only was her situation not exceptional, this was something very rare for women, but explain the idea of, of any, re the any what, it, what was called any reason divorce. Well, the thing about it is, is that it's, is it plausible that all of her husbands died? It is, but it's not probable. And we know that because of how prevalent divorce was. And the reason why divorce had become so prevalent in that era in that day and age, especially within the Jewish community, is because of the any reason divorce that had become popularized. And the way that any reason divorce had become popular, popularized is through the tradition of Talmudic interpretation. And what that means is, is that much like preachers today will use commentaries to help them make sense of the scriptures and they'll use commentaries to get some perspective on, you know, a particular topic or a particular passage or anything like that. The Jews did that too. They had the law of Moses, they had the Torah, they had the prophets, they had all of the writings that had been compiled in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And they had their commentaries as well. They had the, the Talmud, which was their commentary. Well, you would have commentaries on the commentaries, and then you'd have commentaries on the commentaries on the commentaries. And you would have much like their commentaries now that we regard as being really good commentaries. You know, you've got, um, uh, what was it? Adam Clark? He's one commentator that a lot of people like to use. And then you have um, Albert Barnes, Matthew Henry. There are a lot of commentaries that are famous commentaries. They've stood the test of time, and you're never going to find something that you agree with, a commentary you're going to agree with 100%. Well, and the same thing was true then. You had a commentator by the name of Hillel, and Hillel was a Jewish rabbi who became noted and who became famous, and his school of thought was called the School of Hillel. He had rabbis that would train under him and his as his protégés, and they would reason from the scriptures, they would study the scriptures, and they would make sense of them so they would know how to apply them in their day and time. 
And by the time you get to the first century, the main dispute that was in regard to the teachings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage concerned Deuteronomy 24.1 that we talked about in the first episode. And the specific word was that ervat debar that we talked about earlier, which was an issue of uncleanness. Now, you had Hillel that said that this, uh, that this idea of cleanness, if there be a matter of indecency or a matter of uncleanness, that's a matter of any type of indecency within the eyes of the husband. It could be anything. It could run the gamut from burning the biscuits in the morning when she cooks dinner to not mending your clothes with the right color of thread. You know, whatever the case was, you could divorce for any reason you wanted, period. Well, and even the ba- Babylonian Talmud, uh, Talmud actually says that, that it says that even if the wife burned a meal, that would be a valid reason to divorce your spouse. And there's, there's a joke that oftentimes I know growing up us preachers would say that if you divorce your wife, she burned the biscuits, then, you know, that that's, don't, if she burns the biscuits, you can divorce your wife. Or if she, if you, uh, if your wife just burns the biscuits, uh, you know, that's, that's, we're talking about that kind of divorce. Well, that wasn't something that us Americans invented. That goes all the way back to Hillel where he actually wrote, wrote, and this is actually part of that school of thought that if your spouse or if your wife did burn a meal, that was valid grounds for divorce, and they used Deuteronomy chapter 24 in order to justify that position. Yeah, and, and opposing the school of Hillel, much like you'll have some commentators that'll go to war with each other, or you'll find some preachers with opposing viewpoints, Like I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the day, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, I'm waiting for the day when there are other podcasts that start responding specifically to the stuff that you and I are putting out, and that's probably going to be a day that comes at some point, And that's fine. Let's get all the information out there. Let's study it. Let's look at these perspectives as we you know, endeavor to hold fast to that, which is good. Well, there was another rabbi named Shammai and Shammai or Shammai. He Shammai, opposed, Shammai. Shammai, Shammai. He opposed the, the Hillelian train of thought that, you know, a cause of indecency could be any cause. They interpreted Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1 as being something that was far more serious than burning the biscuits. This had to be some sort of uncleanness. This had to be some sort of ritual uncleanness, specifically where they honed in on it and where they developed their train of thought was to was towards the idea that this state of uncleanness was and could reference and should reference in practice adultery. So it, it could be adultery, and that was the predominant thought in Shemaiah's school of thought, but it could be anything else that was considered really, really serious. And David N. Stone Brewer in his book, um, what was it, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible, Recovering the Literary Context, he discusses this in gory detail. If you're wanting to get into a deeply scholarly book about this debate that references those sources that are found... Dr. Enstone Brewer, he does research at Oxford. He has seen and held in his own hands these divorce certificates, these scripts that have been found. This is his life's work. This cat knows this stuff. He knows it. He knows it extremely well. And why don't you go ahead and, and, and read his quote from that? Because it's really, really interesting because he really sums it up well. Yeah, so... Basically, just to, before I read that, the, the general idea that we're getting at is you, you had two predominant school of thoughts. So one that believed you could divorce for pretty much any reason, the school of Hillel, and then the school of Shammai that said, no, it had to be something serious. Usually something like adultery, There are there's some debate whether it could include things other than adultery. But here is what Enstone and Brewer says, and I love this quote. He says, it's unlikely that many of the ordinary people chose to follow 
the Shammai teaching on divorce. Almost no one who was wanting divorce would choose a Shammai judge when he knew that a Hillel judge would approve in any matter divorce without requiring any evidence. And he goes on, he talks about how there are others, such as Josephus, who assumed the Hillite divorce uh, or Hillel divorce was the, ugh, that, that's a tongue twister, was the only type of divorce in use. And he says that even the vast majority of first century Jewish divorces would have been any matter or any reason divorces. And for practical purposes, he goes on to say that all divorces brought by men against their wives could be viewed as any matter divorces. So I think that is such a powerful statement based upon a man who has studied this, who is looking at the historical sources and saying, look, during this time, you had a lot of people who were divorcing and remarrying. Many people who were divorcing and remarrying were divorcing and remarrying multiple times, and they were doing so for any reason they wanted to. And that's why they would go to a judge from the school of Hillel because uh, they didn't have to have any proof of anything. They could just go and get their divorce certificate similar to today. You could just go and say, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to divorce. I don't I want a reason just because non, non-compatibility I'm ready to, to divorce. And that is what was taking place during this time. Well, and, and it's interesting to know, and you mentioned this, you would go to the court, you would go to a Hillelite court. And that's another thing that I think bears mentioning at this point is you had the school of Shammai and you had rabbis that studied under Shammai and his protégés. They would later become mentors to other young Jews, much like, you know, Paul was a protégé of Gamaliel. That's, that's the type of training that these men had who would become rabbis. Well, these rabbis and these different schools of thought would set up different legal court systems. And depending on what was going on, you would go to a Shammai court or a Hillelite court. Well, the Hillelite divorce became the predominant form of divorce because it was so much easier. You didn't have to prove anything. And so you would go to the Hillelite court. You didn't have very many Shammai um, or Shammai divorces noted in history because you just didn't go to those courts to get a divorce. It would be more work and more troublesome. But here's what's interesting. And here's what I think we need to note is that both courts recognize the legitimacy of the other court's divorce. If you got divorced in a Hillelite court, you know, maybe you had to travel to the next town over because you didn't have much of a um, Hillelite presence in your town, but you had a Shammai presence in your town. Maybe you travel to the next town over to file your divorce certificate and have it granted and signed off on, and then you're done. Well, if you wanted to remarry, you could remarry in a Shammai court because they would recognize the validity of the Hillel divorce. They recognized each other's and authorized in, they recognized as what's the word legitimate each other's divorce certificates and they cooperated with each other. Even though they disagreed, they still cooperated. Now you mentioned in the last podcast that it seems likely that Mary and Joseph or rather Joseph, whenever he desired to put away Mary secretly, that he likely would have sought out a Hillelite divorce. And what is it about the text that leads you to that conclusion? When you go to Matthew one nineteen, just remember the context is that before the angel appeared to Joseph, he was betrothed to Mary. And we talked about this last week, how when we talk about betrothal, it's a contract. It was considered a a spiritual covenant and contract when you were betrothed to someone. This was serious under the Jewish law. And just like with a if you had a, a spouse that you were actually married to, 
And by the way, the word husband and wife and and male and female and husband and wife are the same words. And that's why it can be confusing when they're translated. But the idea is that if you were betrothed under Jewish law, it was the same thing as being married in the sense of legality and being a covenant. So while it wasn't the exact same thing in practice, the Jews saw the severity of breaking that is just as just the same as if you were committed adultery if you were actually married versus if you were just betrothed. So keep that in mind. It's very important. Whatever argument you make against or for betrothal has to be the same under Jewish law for marriage because when we saw Deuteronomy 22 last week, the same requirements, the same consequences, the same punishments, all of those things are seen whether you were betrothed or whether you were married. It was the same thing under Jewish law. So Joseph and Mary were betrothed, and he all of a sudden realized, hey, I think Mary has been sleeping around. Why? Because she's pregnant. His first thought is not, this must be a miraculous conception. Everything's okay, <laughs> because, you know, nobody would think that. So he <laughs> thought that his, his betrothed had been committing adultery. But the text tells us that he was a just man, and so he wanted to divorce her secretly. The idea of secretly means he didn't want to reveal the reason why he was doing it. It wasn't that he was going to do it and nobody knew he did it, because clearly if you were betrothed to somebody... Then and typically there was a year before consummation of the marriage that took place. So if you were if you were betrothed to somebody, you could it just wasn't like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna divorce them. Nobody's gonna know about it. This is no everybody would know because you were putting them that that person away. You were divorcing them. Same word Jesus uses in Matthew 19. So if that's the case, what he's doing is he is divorcing her without letting anybody know the reason why. He actually is taking the blame in a sense, and he's considered just for doing so. And I, I think that's just incredible because instead of trying to tarnish Mary's reputation and name, he was going to do it without giving a reason. And so the Hillel court allowed that. You didn't have to say, well, the reason I'm divorcing my betrothed is because she's pregnant and I'm not the one who got her pregnant. He didn't do that, and he didn't have to do that. So Matthew 119 shows that not only is divorce real, not only is betrothal and marriage as far as the severity and as far as the legality and the lawfulness and the covenant and all of those things equal, we see that he did this based upon the Hillel court from context. There, there's no reason to believe that he would have gone to Shammai court and divorced for adultery because he did it secretly and he wouldn't have wanted that to to get out. Of course, he didn't follow through with it because an angel warned him, but he was a just man, which shows that divorcing is not always unjust. Yeah, and, and to me, the fact that it says that he's a just man proves that it's not always an unjust thing. But but divorce was super common in that in the first century Judean and Near Eastern world. It was something that occurred far more frequently than what it needed to, which is what we'll get into whenever we get further along into Jesus. But it was also really, really common among the Gentile world, too, in Rome and in Greece. It was something that was even more prevalent than in Jewish circles, wasn't it? Yeah, and sometimes people have 
said that there have been overstatements of just how common divorce is. And clearly we can see a lot of hyperbole in some of the early writings in the first century about how common divorce is. But even allowing for exaggeration, hyperbole, and if you allow for all that, it still proves the point that it was very common. For example, uh, in Exploring the New Testament World by Bale, he said virtually every uh, notable Roman of the two centuries on either side of Christ's birth was divorced and remarried at least once, often to women who were previously married. And Jerome actually mentions a Roman who had 22 husbands. And Seneca, who was a first century Roman, yeah, 22, yeah, had been married and divorced 22 times. And Seneca, a first century Roman philosopher, said that women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married, and women dated the years by the names of their husbands. Now, that quote has received quite a bit of criticism because anytime we, we say a quote, we want to be honest. We don't ever want to try to skew the evidence because we're looking for truth. Uh, we have changed. I pretty much gave up my whole career because I realized I was not following truth and I did not have the facts on my side. So we are we're never wanting to try to overstate the point. So is it the case that probably everybody was married 22 times? No. Is it really the case that women probably actually numbered the uh, or, or counted how old they were by the n- number of husbands they had? No. That That's all exaggeration, and we understand that. But the point is, is that divorce was not uncommon back then. Like, for example, today, everyone talks about in America how how divorce is so rampant and has been for the past several decades. And, and we, we hear all these different things as if this is something that's new. But I would argue that from the evidence we have, divorce was even more common in the first century during the time of Jesus when and who he was talking to and his audiences and who would become Christian Christians versus even how prominent it is today in America. Now, can I can I prove that without the shout out? Of course I can't. But it doesn't matter because the point is is that divorce was very common. Divorce and remarriage was extremely common during this time. Yeah, there was a lot of divorcing going on. There was a lot of remarrying going on. And to me, it's real similar to what we see in America. You know, you just mentioned that. And before the late 50s and early 60s, divorce was fairly rare. It was a rarity in America. There weren't that many people that got divorced because in America, you could only divorce in some states for adultery. And in other states, in some states, you couldn't divorce at all, especially if there was a strong Catholic presence there, not until not until later on. And whenever any cause or no fault divorce became a thing, divorces went up. And that's not a sign that marriages all of a sudden became bad. It's just that now these women or men that were trapped in bad marriages, now they had a way to get out of them. And by, and, and by the way, I just want to interject this. I'm not trying to justify anything, and neither is Lee right now. We're simply saying this is the context. So what, whatever yeah. we end up concluding, we have to make those conclusions within the context in which they were said. So we're not saying, oh, because it was common and, every, and, and this was happening for any reason, that this makes everything okay. We're simply saying that this is the reality of the situation. Right or wrong, this is, this is the reality of the first century. And the reason why that's so important is because that sheds light on the words that Jesus used and the things that Jesus taught concerning this. Truth doesn't exist in a vacuum. 
Culture doesn't exist in a vacuum, and Jesus's words don't exist in a cultural vacuum. Jesus's words and what Jesus taught should be contextualized if we're going to get the full meaning of it. We need to consider what the author had in mind whenever he recorded what Jesus said, but we also need to consider how would the audience have received that? How would the audience have interpreted what was written? What were the underlying assumptions in the back of their mind whenever they read this or that or whatever else? What are the assumptions that we have whenever we read something or hear something? You know, in the last podcast, you alluded to the idea of it raining cats and dogs. Everyone who listens to this understands that that's an idiom that references how hard it's raining. And I, I think you made that point really, really well. But there are some people who take a different approach to Jesus's teachings, even though that whenever we consider the context, it helps to shed light and it helps us to better understand the point that he made. There are still some people who say, well, we don't really need all that because that's going outside of the Bible. You're saying you have to understand archaeology and anthropology and everything else to know what Jesus meant and to know what Jesus taught. And you're saying that you need more than the Bible and the Bible you know, isn't easy to understand. And if you're saying that, then well, what does that mean about being saved? What does that mean about what God's will is? You're saying that we can't understand that unless we have a PhD in theology and we can read ancient Hebrew and Greek. No, 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 no. You don't need a PhD to be able to come to Jesus and make him Lord of your life. You don't need, you know, to understand biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew and know how to read Aramaic. You don't need to hold the original manuscripts in your hands to know that God loves you to know that Jesus died to save you and that if you place your trust in Jesus, that you can be saved. You don't need that. But to better understand the context of the time, we need to know what that context was. And that will help us make a whole lot better sense in what Jesus knew and what Jesus taught. Well, and when you take into consideration not just the historical context that Jesus taught within— but there's something in addition to that, and that is how do we actually approach Jesus' teachings as far as how to understand what he meant? And let me explain to you what, what I mean by that statement. There are those who would agree with, with you and I on that, Lee. They would agree. They would say, hey, Kevin, I agree with everything you just said, everything you and Lee talked about with context, I agree. But we now come to what Jesus said, and their approach to Jesus is a very different approach. They take what I call a straightforward approach to Jesus' teachings. In other words, he meant what he said, and there's really no interpretation or qualification that we need. Just whatever Jesus said, we need to do it. And the idea is that Jesus is really teaching a much harder and difficult moral standard, and that he's changing the teachings of the Jewish law. But with the Spirit's help, we can practice kingdom living no matter how difficult it may be. I was having a conversation with someone about this, and they said, Look, Kevin, I completely agree with you about all the context, but this is what Jesus said, and as hard as it is to accept, we just need to accept it. And my response was, I'm willing to accept what Jesus said based upon what he meant when he said it. And that's, yeah. the, that's the difference. And so so I want to kind of get into to this a little bit. Um because there there's several different things that that we need to look at. So that's one perspective. You come to Jesus and you read Jesus teachings through a straightforward approach. But I reject that perspective because most if not all of Jesus statements must be qualified 
And they should not be understood as absolutes. And I'm going to give you kind of a laundry list of these things real quick. And by the way, this isn't just for understanding Jesus. This is understanding for from any biblical author. For example, Jesus said, do not call anyone a fool, yet he called people fools. Jesus said, do not take an oath, yet he took an oath. And by the way, I'll go ahead and give Bible for this. So the do not call anyone a fool, Matthew 5, 22. Calling people fools, Matthew 23, 17. Even Paul talks about the foolish Galatians in Galatians uh, chapter 3. Do not, t- even though there is there is a, a, a different word there, so I, that's a completely different study altogether. But anyway, Jesus called someone a fool when he said not to. <laughs> don't I, I hope people don't get too distracted by me and you, Lee, because we... You know, when we we talk about these issues, we we think of something, and Lee and I do like to qualify. We overqualify because we've been there, and I'm just in my mind thinking what people are thinking right now. I can just hear somebody say, "Well, the the root word may be the same, but it's not." The, so I'm hearing all these things as I say it. So that's why I try to constantly be qualifying these things for that person out there. Who's well, they're like, the arguments. Do what? Yeah, well, I mean, they're the they're the arguments. These arguments and these qual- that that voice in the back of your head. That's your voice. That voice in the back of my head, that's my voice because these are the same things that I would have said. Yeah. These are the same things that you would all, oh, well, that's not the original. And if you go back to the original Greek or, or whatever else, those are arguments that you and I have both made. That's why we want to qualify this because it's like it, we're not dogging anybody in particular except our past selves. Yeah, yeah. It's like we get it. We're refuting We're refuting ourselves. And so, okay, so go, so back to the point. So my point is that you cannot take what Jesus said in isolation as an absolute. That's my point, and here's why. So Jesus said, do not call anyone a fool. He called, called the scribes and Pharisees fools. Jesus said, do not take an oath, Matthew 5, 34 through 37. Jesus took an oath in Matthew 26, 63. Jesus said, if anyone wants to basically abuse you or hurt you, let them do so. So just turn your other cheek. Let them take physical advantage of you uh, in Matthew 5, 39. But then Jesus obviously is protecting himself in John 7, verse 1, in Matthew 2, 13 through 22. We also see even his parents protecting him as well. So protecting yourself is is part of what we see in the gospel. It doesn't mean that you literally just let somebody beat you up and you do nothing to try to protect yourself. If someone wants to sue you, Jesus said, give him even more in Matthew 5, verse 40. Yet in Luke 18, 1 through 8, we see that Jesus is teaching a justice principle where you don't need to let people take advantage of you. And uh, if you do, it needs to be by choice, but sometimes you need to make sure that that doesn't happen. Jesus said, do not pray in public, uh, Matthew 6, 6. Yet Jesus prayed in public. In fact, Jesus said, only pray in your room. Yet we see that he prayed for the food when he uh, fed the 5,000. Do not call anyone father or teacher, Jesus said, Matthew 23, 9 through 10. Yet we understand there there are fathers and teachers. In fact, even Jesus himself talks about him being a rabbi. And we understand today we call people teachers and we call people preachers. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, talks about how there are different roles in teachers and preachers and pastors. So my point is this, is that people say that whatever the Bible says, that's what it means. But I like to say the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. And that yeah. that, that is, is such a powerful point because we have to qualify. We can't just go to the Bible and say, Jesus said, cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin. And that's what Jesus said. Therefore, I'm going to do it regardless of how difficult it may seem. Yeah. And, and contextualizing things. I mean, we do that with everything else. I mean, if, if you come home and it, like if I get home tonight and... I walk in and I ask him, I say, baby, how was your day? And she says, the kids were monsters. 
I'm not going to stand the gas and say, oh my goodness, did they like literally grow a third arm out of their head and like did Riley's jaw fall off and these massive saber tooth teeth come out and, you know, did the boys destroy or if I walk home and she says, yeah, the kids just destroyed the house. Well, did they get a crowbar and tear it all down? Did they completely wreck everything? Did they, you know, completely demolish the house? That's what Kim says, but that's not what she means. The Bible says what it says, but the Bible also means what it means. And we have to use wisdom to discern what that is. And using wisdom means that we grow in our knowledge of the context and we learn how to apply that knowledge to the context to gain the best grasp of what the Holy Spirit revealed and how to apply it in the here and now. And that ain't easy. You know, there was a time where I believed that the Bible was perspicuous. It was, you know, easy to read. And anyone that picked it up and read it would come to the same conclusions that I did. And one of the things that I've discovered is that the Bible isn't as simple as what we make it out to be. The gospel is simple. Following Jesus is simple. That doesn't mean that it's always easy, but it is simple. But understanding all of the layers that go into this, it's anything but simple. Well, and this is why we talk about context. This is why we emphasize understanding and qualifying Jesus' statements. Because if we read these as legislative law that is just straightforward and easy to understand, then Jesus contradicted his own teaching. And that certainly is something that we don't want to conclude. But there is another aspect of this with approaching the way Jesus taught that we need to consider. And that is Jesus actually said he is not teaching a law that it contradicts the Jewish law at this point. Jesus is not teaching something that is contradictory to the established Jewish laws. But instead, he is properly teaching the Jewish law. And I want to read here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. So let me just pull this up here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he goes on to talk about those who are not willing to follow the, the Jewish law. Jesus was a Jew who taught the Jewish law and who lived under the Jewish law and who even said, I am not teaching contrary to the Jewish law. But here is something else to think about. If Jesus was teaching a new law in his marital teachings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and if he was teaching something that contradicted the old, the old, what we call the old law, but at that point was the current law, <laughs> then the scribes yeah. and Pharisees would have had something right then to accuse him of, but they didn't. In other words, when you look at the scribes and Pharisees, they were constantly trying to find him in a contradiction. In Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16, in the instances where Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce, the whole reason that the scribes and Pharisees are asking him is so that they could test him and find something to accuse him of. They're trying to find him in a contradiction. So if Jesus said, hey, scribes and Pharisees, guess what? I am teaching a completely different new law on marriage and divorce, and here it is. Boom. Guess what? They would have said, all right, we've got everything we need. Jesus just admitted to teaching a completely different law, contrary to the law. Let's take them to the courts and let's go ahead and, and have this thing out right now. But that's not the case. So not only do you have Jesus explicitly saying, I'm not teaching a new law right now. I'm not doing that. 
Not only do you have that, you have the fact that the scribes and Pharisees never accused him in his marital teachings of teaching a new law or new uh, command of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Instead, he is properly teaching what the law taught, what the Jewish law taught. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not teaching a new law. He is correcting their understanding. And and, and here's something else to think about, Lee. And I, I, want, I love talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're not going to do a whole lesson on that today. But let's just talk about this for a moment. Jesus is, is not raising the standard of morality when he is teaching. And how do we know that that's the case? How do we know that Jesus is not raising the standard of morality? Well, we know that he's not raising the standard of morality because that standard of morality was already encoded within the law itself. I mean, if you look at the Jewish law, especially and even some of the wisdom literature in the Jewish scriptures in the Hebrew Bible, Lust and hate were already sins. They were already enumerated as bad things. And you can read about that in Exodus 20 and 17. And Solomon writes about this in Proverbs 6 and 25. In Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, Exodus uh, 23, 4 and 5. And there, I mean, there's a multitude of passages in Proverbs. You got Proverbs 25 and 11. These were already things that at the very least shouldn't be found in the mind of one of God's people. But in some instances, these were codified as being sinful in and of themselves. So Jesus isn't teaching something new. He's reorienting his Jewish brethren's perspective back to the original intention of the law. And it's important to make this point because in order for our traditional, our people's traditional view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage to stand, we have to take the idea or take the position that Jesus is enumerating new law. Moses said to you, but I say to you, well, Jesus is teaching new law here. If Jesus is teaching new law, well, then the argument that we make regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage about the guilty party not being able to remarry, and you know, if you do remarry, then the only way to be right in God's sight is to subsequently divorce your new spouse. You have to take the position that Jesus was teaching something new. And yet, before he begins his sermon, before he goes into his antitheses, his antithetical statements, he says, now listen, y'all, he gives a qualifier like you and I give qualifiers. He says, I'm not here to dispose of the law. I'm not here to do away with the law. I'm not here to abolish the law. There ain't one jot or tittle going to pass from the law until all is fulfilled. He is reorienting them towards what it was. So Jesus didn't didn't raise that standard of morality because they were already sins. So he didn't already add to that established moral law. He's drawing people back to that true intentions. Those thoughts had always been wrong. And there was no denial that Jesus was teaching the true purpose of the Jewish law. That's the most powerful statement that contextually you could make is that they could not deny Jesus was properly teaching the Jewish law. Did it aggravate them a little bit? Did it put them on the hot seat because they realized that, you know, I, I think that the, fa- the fact that they had been living through a law system and it had benefited them, and now all of a sudden Jesus is telling them, you've not been understanding it completely. Did that, did that affect them? Yes. But did they say, this is not Jewish law? No. Had Jesus said, I am teaching something contrary to the law, 
he would have been contradicting himself. And once again, the scribes and Pharisees would have had something to condemn him of. And that's why people think Jesus is raising the standard of morality because they say, well, now lust is the same thing as adultery and murder is the same or hate is the same thing as murder. Well, Jesus is once again, he's, he's not, he's not saying I'm giving you all these new commands. And if you thought it was hard under the old Testament, boy, you just wait because the new Testament and the new covenant is going to really kick it up a notch. How in the world, if, if they couldn't keep it under the old Testament, the way it was, would, would we expect to believe that we can keep anything under the new covenant? It's even harder than the old. So this whole idea is not even a, a proper way to, to look at what Jesus is saying. And so the Jesus lived and died under the Jewish law and properly taught it, and he is not raising the standard of morality. Now, I will say there are people, once again, who would agree with us, and they're going to say that Jesus isn't contradicting the law, but he's going all the way back to the beginning of, of creation to talk about marriage to say this is the true law. This is actually the real law that was taught but because of the hardness of your hearts, uh, Moses allowed you all these extra laws. And we're not going to get into that in this episode. We're going to get into that in the next episode. But the, the point being is that there are still a lot of people out there who may agree with even what we're saying and still disagree with some of our conclusions. And don't worry, we're going to be dealing with that specifically. But for now, suffice it to say that we've got to admit two things. Number one, the historical context is that people were divorcing and marrying left and right. I mean, that was just very common. Number two, we have to understand that a divorce always ended the marriage according to Jesus. And a marriage, regardless of which marriage it was, was always considered a real marriage if you were divorced from your past spouse. Also, we have to admit that Jesus is not teaching a new, more difficult law system and that Jesus is not contradicting the Jewish law, because if he was, he would be literally contradicting what he just said, that he wouldn't, he, he would literally be doing what he just said he was not going to do in Matthew 5, 17 through 18. And furthermore, if that was the case, then the scribes and Pharisees would have actually had something to accuse him of, and that's the whole reason they were trying to, to, to talk to him about these different subjects, including marriage and divorce anyway. Yeah, it's... it's to me, the strongest case for this is the idea of Matthew 5 and 17 and Jesus saying, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to undo the law. I came to fulfill it. And the fulfillment of the law is that reorientation back to the original context of the law, the intent of the law. And when you know it, we did a whole podcast on the intent of the law and the letter of the law not too long ago. So if you guys haven't listened to that one yet, go back and check that one out. It's a dandy. It's a really, really good one. It's a good one. Yes. So what we are going to do, because we have been ram- rambling on and yammering on for about an hour now, we're going to go ahead and call this session good. We're going to say we're going to bring this one to a close. We didn't even get into the guilty party, but y'all will just have to stay tuned for our next episode. When yeah. We get and, into that. and that's the great thing about technology, because Lee and I are miles apart and yet we're communicating in secret. And we were like, wow, <laughs> we have already been talking a long time. Let's let's make that one episode and break that one up a little bit. And because we, I feel like though this is important because it really not just talks about the Jewish law, but this is going to help you understand the context for what we're about to say about Jesus in the next episode. So we're not going to get into the guilty today. We are, we wanted to, but we're not going to in this episode, but we will in the next episode. Yeah, we will. So once again, thank you all for listening. 
share our podcast with your friends, join our Facebook group, um, get on there and interact, engage with us, ask questions, um, email us. We still want to hear your questions. We still haven't got very many questions for our Q and a session that we're going to use to wrap up this series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Send us your questions. We have the email address in the um, episode notes down below. So click that pound out a email to us, send it, any questions that you may have, we would love to answer them. Leave us a five-star review in iTunes. Leave us a five-star review in Google Podcasts, on Stitcher, whatever platform you choose to listen, please give us a review, like our podcast, share it with your friends. We thank you all so much because if, if we didn't have any listeners, we wouldn't keep doing this for hours on end. So thank you all for all that you do, and we will see you next time.